My name is Buffy Baggett. Uh, I was named after Buffy St. Moy. My father was a disc jockey. My mother used to, after they were first married, would call into his radio show and request Buffy St. Moy songs. So I've got the name and I, I like it. It kind of fits now. I was born in California in San Jose. And uh, I have kind of, I guess, an interesting musical background. Started off as more of a rock and roll singer uh, and musical theater. Uh, but eventually uh, went into opera via college. I got scholarships uh, to sing in, in opera. And then from college, uh, I kind of bebopped around a little bit, but ended up in the Young Artist Program at the Lyric Opera of Chicago. Uh, oh, and also the Young Artist Program at Santa Fe Opera. Uh, so um, from there, just kind of started, started hitting the road. <laughs> so, and I was on the road quite a bit for, for, for many, many, many years. But now I live in San, uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. I live in a little place called Point Richmond, which is uh, near the water and sort of a small historical uh, hamlet, we kind of like to call it. So with my husband and two dogs and a cat, too. We also live with a cat, Wiley, who rules the whole household. They're mutts. Uh, they are, and they're from the same litter. It's a brother and sister, and they are uh, miniature dachshund, German shepherd, pit bull, Chihuahua and uh, Cocker Spaniel. We did do the testing, the genetic testing, to see what they were because we were interested. So they're brats. They're very bratty. <laughs> I mostly sing opera. Um, at this point, I decided I wanted to kind of settle uh, in one place. So I primarily sing with the San Francisco Opera now uh, in their professional chorus. So I'm a tenured member, uh, but I still kind of zip out here and there to do uh, to gigs, you know, like this one. It's a gig. <laughs> Uh, but I do on occasion do uh, musical theater. Uh, Mrs. Lovett from Sweeney Todd is one of my bigger roles. Uh, I've done uh, Eldonza in Man of La Mancha. Um, so once in a while, I kind of go back to, to belting a little bit, which is fun, a lot of fun. My background, um, including the musical aspect, my father uh, is a actor, director, writer. So uh, initially, he had a, a small advertising agency. So my brother and I, from from very young, when we were very young, used to do commercials for him. He would hire us on, and we would get a treat. We never got paid. Uh, but we had a good time doing that. And from there on, yeah, you know, uh, I took some classes with uh, Second City in Chicago. And we had that training through the opera. They were actually uh, quite interested in making sure that we were stage savvy. Um, but I've always, you know, I've always liked acting and I really would have probably done a straight acting career or a musical theater career, except that I, at the time I just felt like, um, I was getting, you know, I was getting the scholarships for, for classical music. So it seemed like that was the right road to take. Um, but yeah, other than that, not a whole lot of straight acting, but the opera does tend to use me now um, uh, in addition to the coursework in uh, sort of character acting roles if they have something available for me. So uh, so I tend to act quite a bit, you know, even if it's uh, this last uh, Cavalleria Rusticana that we did, they had a large scene where uh, two people were fighting. So we got to yell out of a window in Italian at each other. Uh, he was cheating, and I'm sure he was cheating, and he said he didn't know what he was, you know, what I was talking about. I was like, oh, sure, I'm going to kill you. Threw his stuff out the window, and then we continued a uh, sort of a silent acting part throughout one of the biggest, the bigger choruses in Cavalleria, throughout the entire chorus. And it was sort of spotlit, so it was a lot of fun to, to kind of get my little acting chops on again. Yeah, lots of emotion, especially in Italian opera. Italian, 
I mean, traditionally, Italian is the number one language that most people really want to sing in. Although, I have a real fondness for the German operas. Uh, quite a bit of my career had had been doing uh, singing Valkyries, Norns, Rhine Maidens in the Ring Cycle. So I, I like that. I like Strauss quite a bit. Um, have sung some roles in Strauss and. Uh, there's something about the German language that's lovely and really chewy. You can kind of dig into it, um, which is interesting now that I'm singing in Hebrew for the Bernstein piece that we're doing here. It's interesting how uh, when they were kind of teaching me the pronunciations of it when I was getting you know, a little coaching on that, how a lot of it does have that Germanic feel to it. So I'm actually really loving the singing in this language that I don't get to sing in terribly often. It is very useful for uh, people, especially in the United States, to take languages if they are going to go into opera, only because we we really only have two distinct languages that are on our borders, and they tend to be on our outer borders. So, um, so we don't have the experience that maybe the Europeans do, where you where you you grow up learning three and four languages because you sort of must. Uh, so it's very important to take the languages. That being said. What we often do is we we definitely translate everything word for word and then get as much coaching as we can on the pronunciation of the language. We like to have the right accent. We want to sound native for sure. Uh, and then in addition to that, we also use the International Phonetics Language Alphabet, and that helps us make sure that we that we have a good head start um, for, for speaking and singing the language uh, properly. We, we really do have to memorize completely what we sing in opera. Uh, however, most of the big opera houses, for many of the operas, uh, they enlist a prompter. So, uh, and I think part of that has, has to do with the fact that you've got stars coming in who might be singing three and four roles back to back. And if you're singing, if you're a specialist in Italian roles, I can see where somebody who's singing that often and that many roles, and especially if you're a Verdi specialist, they start to kind of infiltrate each other. So most of the big opera houses like to have just that, that, that little bit of extra care, you know, for their singers that are on stage, which is lovely, which is very nice. And they also enlist prompters um, to sort of help the singers as they're on stage because the conductor is so far away or seems far away. Just to kind of help them immediately. He, a lot of prompters will, if they're in the box, will say, speed up. Oh, your pitches may be a little low. Uh, hold off. Don't sing. Now go. So they serve as a second conductor, really, which is, um, it's interesting. It's quite a skill to, to, as a prompter, it's quite a skill to have. And then as a singer, if you're not used to prompters, it can be a little jarring first. So I was very lucky that I had uh, Chicago Lyric in my background because they use prompters quite a bit um, and quite well. The prompters, the prompters in opera tend to, uh, they, they tend to have a little box that's right at the foot of the stage where they're raised a tiny, just a tiny bit. And you can see their heads and their lips so you can see them. Uh, but because they're throwing their voices out uh, with the prompt, you know, they'll prompt words. You know, they'll even sing sometimes if somebody you know, falls off, off the rails. Um, so you can hear them, but uh, the audience can't because their voice is being thrown toward the singers and then the singers sing out. So it, it's interesting. It's a fun thing. One of the best parts 
whenever we give little um, little informal tours at San Francisco Opera, is to sneak our friends up to sit to take a look at what it looks like from the prompter's box. It's, it's very interesting. It's a little claustrophobic, but these guys do a wonderful job for us. It's all verbal. It's all verbal and then hand signals, visual. So because there would be no way, even the prompters are, you know, can be, you know, 10, 20, 30 feet from where you're, where you're singing. So it does have to be something that you can hear and see. So I'm um, holding up a cue card just probably wouldn't work, especially because they, they prompt constantly. So if you're thinking about the, the teleprompters that, uh, the presidents might use, politicians, uh, you know, even music, even some musicians in the popular fields will use that. Uh, for when they're singing on a large stage. We don't use that. The closest thing we might use um, is that we tend to have monitors all around the stage and even on some of the boxes at the, where the audience sits. Again, nobody's going to see them because they're, they're, that's not what they're looking at. Um, and that we will usually put the, the real conductor, the person who is conducting, he'll be on those monitors so that if for some reason you can't see him or you can't see the, the prompter, but you can still look at those and still understand where the beat is and come in properly. So it's, it's quite a feat. There's a lot of electronics now that are, um, that are part of the operatic, uh, experience. What's lovely about, um, singing in large venues and small venues is that it is a very different experience. So, for me, singing on the big stage, let's say, it's it's very exciting. You're looking out over at, like in the case of San Francisco Opera, it's, you know, 3,000 people um, that are, uh, you know, all going all the way to the top of the ceiling of this building. It's, it's amazing. And, and feeling your voice coming back from a hall that was made to do that, where, where you, you're not relying on, uh, on any kind of amplification at all. You're just singing out, and, and it's pretty amazing when you hear your voice come back. It bounces off the back of the hall, and you're like, yes. That's really exciting. What we lose in that sometimes, I think, is that in, in a small setting, you can really see people's faces. You know, even I mean, 300 doesn't sound like a small venue necessarily, but I can see everybody usually to the back. It also allows me, um, especially in an unamplified setting, to let me really play with the space a little more in a large venue. Again, you really are, you're working so hard to, to be heard over the orchestra and you have to really depend on the conductor to keep the orchestra at a level where you can sing over them. And you're hoping the music is right for that and uh, that you've been staged properly for that. In a smaller venue, I feel like I have a little more control and I, I, I enjoy that and I like to play a little bit more. So even in, um, in the setting here at the Lincoln, uh, it was it was interesting to go. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is what I what I really enjoy doing as well. And then being able to play a little bit, and, and you know, being able to depend on Wes Kenny to certainly uh, support what I'm doing is pretty exciting as well. Two different experiences, both equally as exciting. Memorization has always been the bane of my existence. It's always been extremely tough. So I have to spend and. From my experience of instrumentalists as well, instrumentalists spend a lot of time practicing. I worked at a, at a, an arts festival in, um, in Michigan where it, you know, all of the, all of us professors on campus, you would just see the instrumentalists would be gone for hours and hours and hours. 
practicing, you know, the scales, practicing passages, and and vocalists do the same thing. Uh, our problem as vocalists is that our mechanism is essentially quite small, if you think about the vocal cords. So if we rehearse for six to eight hours vocally, we're not going to have a voice left at the end, you know, unless you're like a total badass and you just have cords of steel. And there are a few people that are like that. Uh, so I tended to have to go after memorization in sort of a methodical way. So, you know, I tend to, everything helps a vocalist. So the, the, the text helps cement it in as you're learning the text and memorizing the text. The music is extremely helpful. So, you know, I'll spend hours translating and then I'll spend, you know, hours learn, learning the music just to get it to understand what I'm singing and trying to sing it in. So some roles, it's, it's a lot easier for me to do that. Um, other roles are like a Strauss role where you're not quite sure when you're coming in, the, the rhythms are tricky. That can take me a very long time. Then once I move from the, the translation and the music kind of idea and, and learning the words, then all it is is honestly just sitting in a room, breaking up the role into little bits and almost speak singing it to myself without vocalizing over and over and over again. And for me, just because I do have a little bit of a background uh, in acting, what I tend to do is work all of that in. So for me, like, like, like I don't have to think, okay, well, this is what I'm going to say. And then the emotion is going to be this. I try to collectively do it all at the same time. But also as a vocalist and a stage person, you don't want to work it in so tightly that you can't change depending on what the director might want. Um, and if you've got a really great collaborative director, they're going to bring up something in your role that maybe you didn't think of, or they're going to ask you to take risks and do it completely differently, have a completely different emotional idea. And, and that's where the fun comes in, I think. So so for me, you know, to learn a complete role, it would probably take, um, you know, at the quickest, um, a month to really get it in. And then we're talking a full-size role. So it would take at least that. There are a few people that, you know, it, it's, it's easy for them. I know people that they can go through a line once or twice and it's always there and they have it. For me, I've got to work it in and I've got to feel the, the continuity of what I'm doing. So what I would usually do is I usually start from the end <laughs> and I work backwards and I keep building on the end um, and what the end of the piece is. So um, let's say when I was learning Carmen, I already knew a few things, a few arias and, and quintets and things from uh, doing scenes or whatnot. But when I learned that, I went directly to the final scene, you know, kind of worked that out, then moved back. And then so every day I would just be adding to the scene that I could do um, and that I could do completely from memory. And of course, you know, coaches, I mean, it's, it's so important, especially as a vocalist to have really great coaches around you that, you know, that ding you when you do stuff that's bad, that tell you, they can tell you what's working. Um, they can see what problems might arise for you. Uh, you know, and then, you know, and then, I, and then I do work on stuff emotionally. I do even, you know, even for the piece that we're singing now, looking at the text, translating it, trying to understand uh, you know, what, what I'm trying to impart to the audience and, and really finding, 
the emotions that, that I want to bring out that, that also kind of ride on top of the music, this emotional music that Bernstein has written is gorgeous. So, and you get loads of clues, loads of hints through what the composer wanted. Of course, you know, of course you have to really look at that first, but, but then you can play a little bit. So, um, so I don't know if that's helpful to anybody who's looking at it, but I would say for vocalists, translate, 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 make sure you've got all the words in rhythm, get the music over the top of it, and then be in a practice room or be at home and play. Just constantly play, think in your mind of what you're going to do or actually get up and, and perform it for your, you know, for yourself or your cat or your dog, <laughs> whoever's there watching. <laughs> as far as musical background goes, I've always primarily been a vocalist. Uh, in my family, everyone plays some sort of an instrument or sings. So I grew up, uh, hearing my mother and my grandmother and an aunt, uh, singing in three-part harmony. Uh, and they did that quite a bit. They went on to do, uh, or my aunts and uncles, you know, went on to uh, do a lot of folk music. Again, they had a lot of harmonization. And uh, so then, you know, once I got a bit older, then I could kind of join in on harmonizing in the three-part harmony that my grandmother and my mom and my aunt sang. So that was all kind of going on. The voc vocalizing was very, very big in my family. But then uh, my brother is a very accomplished um player of everything, which really ticks me off. Uh, so he plays everything, uh, mostly stringed instruments. So, uh, and in the rock and roll realm, guitar, bass, he plays some piano. He plays drums actually quite well. He's, he's, uh, yeah, he's, he really ticks me off. Uh, but then uh, most other members of my family do play um, either piano or guitar. I am, as far as mus musicianship goes, I'm okay. I can look at a piece of music and I can understand what the rhythms are, you know, give me a little help with the notes. I can usually find my way through a score. Um, but there are, there are certainly quite a few vocalists who, uh, who, who are beautiful pianists and they come from that background first sometimes. Um, it seems to me that I also know quite a few mezzo sopranos who, well, again, were either keyboardists or who played who played uh, cello or viola, which I find very interesting. So somehow we might actually kind of go toward the instrument that we sound like. Uh, so you've got opera singers all along the spectrum. There are some that don't read music at all. And it, it actually doesn't matter one whit because their ear is so good and their, uh, their vocal instrument is so amazing that they're just willing to go ahead and work. And I do, I, the coaches actually do quite a bit of um, work with us on that, making sure that we are, you know, that we are perfect. You know, even, you know, last night, even I was, as I was singing, watching the score, I was like, ooh, you know, I, I need to talk, I need to talk to our conductor and find out, am I singing some of these little funky uh, intervals? Am I singing them right in tune or, or am I cheating a little bit? Because I kind of go against the orchestra a little bit. So, um, so we, we depend on everyone to help really our own ears and everyone else's, uh, who are support. If you're, if you're a, a musician or a, or a vocalist who has trouble, um, you know, with reading a page, a page of music, then really the first thing you should do is probably, you know, start learning a little bit. But, um, we usually try to go to a live coach who will help us, um, you know, or a repetiteur is what they're often called. 
and they sit with you and they plunk out the notes and you memorize, you record it and then you memorize it that way. That being said, it's also just really important, if nothing else, for a historical perspective, especially for things like opera and orchestral works, to listen to a bunch of recordings. You know, and I will not say that I'm not above, uh, especially if you have to learn something very quickly, to go ahead and listen to a full recording only because you do actually get a sense of, of how traditionally it's been performed. And traditionally means there are still a lot of different ways that people will interpret something or sing something. Um, but then also so that you can pick up things that you might not pick up if you're just working on a piano. So, uh, so I listened to three recordings of the piece that we're doing, um, here just to understand, because I didn't have a full score in front of me, what instruments I would be hearing, you know, and there, and it's certainly for me to, when I started thinking about how I wanted to interpret certain lines, uh, one of the things I said at our dress rehearsal or our rehearsal last night was, ah, I can hear the flute player. And especially the flute player who's playing here is beautiful, has a beautiful sound. And I was like, I want to mimic a bit of that quality of sound in one of the, the small lines that I have to sing. So uh, so listening, too, is super important. And that's something that I think that, um, that, again, it's so great now that we have YouTube. And you can see modern live performances. You can see historical performances that are put up by the Met or others. And it's just a wealth, a wealth of information. You know, as far as memorization goes, you don't want to sit with just one interpretation because that's going to box you in. And, you know, and we, we need to be immediate. You know, I, I feel, you know, as a, as a performer, you want to be immediate and bring the, the immediacy of the, uh, the, the situation you're in. So. Well, Colin Symphony, I, <laughs> I have to say after our rehearsal the other night and during it, and <laughs> I can get a little weepy now, I was like, it is beautiful what they're doing. It's amazing. <laughs> it's, uh, they're tight, you know, and, and I think it was interesting that our maestro, I mean, he was picking apart little things and there was, there was an immediate change. So I, I mean, I, I, I understand that this is an orchestra that's made up of, of younger players and, you know, and the old guard. Um, but boy, you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know it. It, um, I really honestly feel like if people are not coming to the symphony here, you need, they need to go. <laughs> they need to go because one of the, one of the wonderful things is that if you've got a group that's playing at such a, such an incredibly high quality, you're going to get an experience that you didn't realize you had. People who often, I, I think, who often don't go to symphony concerts, they're used to hearing and going, Oh, well, you know, we played in high school and this concert were, were they were okay or whatever. And, and it's exciting to see friends there, of course, you know, in the, in the high school realm. And there are often um, really great high school or orchestras as well. But when you start really hearing, uh, people who have skills that are at such a high level and you're hearing the music and in, really interpreted, um, it's, it's a transformative experience. Sorry. Just, it just is. Uh, it, it's the way they even get young people in who think they don't like, uh, I don't like classical music. Then you haven't heard it live done in the way that it should be. So, boy, <laughs> I mean, I would put a shout out right now. If you're not coming, go. And plus all of the, the repertoire that, you, that the symphony here is doing is really interesting and really good. And I think there's something for everybody, particularly, particularly at this concert. 
there's going to be something for everyone. You have heard at some point a piece of music that's playing, that that's being played. And in addition to that, you're going to hear a piece of music that you didn't realize that kind of, that that's going to strike you. And it's going to strike you as beautiful or heart-wrenching or exciting, you know. So uh, go, go support your arts. (laughs) The question of whether it's more beneficial to have a conductor that you work with all the time versus having conductors that you work with occasionally or once in a while or even only once. It's, I think it's an interesting one. Um, in the operatic industry for the big houses, um, and, and, and most often for the smaller houses, um, you do have one person who is the, the musical director and, uh, who often is the conductor. And so they work with this set group of people uh, often. And so you do get this experience of being able to almost, you know, intuit what the conductor is. You you know the conductor, you know they're going to do that. Um, And that's a really great thing. In the big houses, the big opera houses, because the the repertoire is uh, is varied and there's often uh, quite a few performances within a week um, of various shows, we do enlist uh, you know a lot of different guest conductors. The I think the the beauty of having a guest conductor and and look singers have to deal with this all the time because we are we are essentially gigging artists. You know we. We tend to go from one house to the next, so you're always working with somebody different. I think the beauty is, again, that it kind of makes you hyper-vigilant in terms of of listening and and hearing and trying to, to, you know, again, interpret what they want you to do. Um, So I think there's benefits to both, honestly, and I think that's... You know, probably why, again, having concert masters and first chairs, that's where it's really that that's kind of what gets everybody on the same page. You've got people that are really leading the sections and and who hopefully um, have had have had enough experience uh, and who are talented enough that even with a visiting conductor, they can figure it out right away. They're like, yep. You know, and, and you often see that. I mean, I see that in our in our opera orchestra, you know, there'll be a little uh you know, a little tete-a-tete between players and their their chair, if you can tell it's not quite gelling. Um, but I think, look, I think there are benefits to both. Um, uh, I, and I think it is probably, it's a really good thing to have uh, a different a different idea on how pieces should go, and even a different idea on how rehearsals should be run, um, you know, what the performance, uh, want, what they want the performance to feel like, different personalities. I mean, that's um, that's part of our human experience, so why not? I think one of the beauties of, uh, of making music and especially um, interpreting music that's already been laid out, whether it's been for centuries or whether people have known songs for you know, just a few years or pieces of just a few years, is that, uh, is that it's, it's, it's rarely wrong what... When you're playing, you know, as long as you've got the bait, you know, get the notes, get the rhythms, you know, try to get an interpretation down. It's rarely wrong. It's just a different idea, you know. So, so it just basically becomes uh, a question of, 
you know, are, are you going to go along with your leader and your leader's idea or not? And I, I try to, I try to go along with it <laughs> because usually it, 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 it informs me. And then if I come back to it later, then I'm, I'm much, I've, I've got more tools in my toolbox. I'm, I'm much more enriched. And, and I can look at things, characters in a different way. You know, when I started, Carmen was one of my first big roles and I got to perform it at the Lyric in Chicago. And I started off with a very, um, probably a very narrow view of who that character was. And I thought, this is the right view. This is the right character. But then the more you see other people do it, the more you, um, investigate it at different years in your life. You start finding all kinds of other things. So, you know, I've played Carmen as, you know, impetuous, impetuous young girl, which is sort of, um, you know, how she's, uh, depicted in the novel. Um, I've, I've played her as, um, you know, very, uh, very adult. I've played her as, uh, never evil, but somebody who, you know, who really doesn't care what happens to anyone else. It's, it's really fun. And so, so now I feel like if a director asks me to do one thing, I, I can go, yeah, no problem. You know, and I'm always looking for somebody who's willing to give me something new to chew on a little bit. You know, I want rich food. I want rich meat for my characters or, or for any of my performances for that matter. The idea of improvisation is interesting. Um, because I think you can, you can improvise in a lot of different ways. So. I guess if I were to recommend something to any singers out there is take an improvisation class just for the stage work. So I think that, I mean, that in itself is very important. Now, when we're talking about musical improvisation, if you look at earlier works, especially the early ones, um, they do have large passages that singers can improvise. Now, we we probably need to talk a little bit about what improvisation means and usually improvisation what it doesn't mean is that you just make something up on the spot even in like if you go to second city they've practiced improvising things quite a bit so that it's enjoyable for the audience and for themselves and and certainly just like memory work the more you do it the more facile you get at it right so so when you look at musical improvisations, if you look at earlier works, um, things like Handel, we're talking about ornamentation, or even coming up with, you know, long melismatic phrases at the end of a phrase. Singers will often do that. And I've only, I haven't seen it done terribly often, but there are some singers that are out there that are singing at a very high level, uh, you know, met level singers for sure, um, who, who are very good at that. And if they're with a conductor who trusts them, they may actually sing a passage very differently from night to night. And we're talking notes. Um, we're talking uh, rhythms. They'll change them from night to night, depending on how they feel. Now, that doesn't mean that they haven't kind of practiced them. But, um, but just like anyone else who may be improvising, You've got certain licks that you, that you've practiced over and over again, whether it's, whether you're a jazz musician or a rock musician, there are things that fit your fingers and fit, you know, what you're thinking about as you're, as you're trying to play in the, again, that kind of emotional connection that you're trying to make. So I, I think that certainly vocalists are in a position where they can certainly improvise quite a bit more possibly than instrumentalists in the, in the classical realm. 
But I think you would be surprised more and more, even um, the classical musicians I know. Um, you know, I know there's this idea that, oh, you know, they, they have to stick to the page. They can't improvise. They can read well, but they can't improvise. More and more just because of, I think, what our culture is in the arts. Um, we're, we're getting a lot more varied in what we listen to and what we want to try. So I think we'll, we'll be seeing um, a new crop of instrumentalists and singers um, that cross over quite, quite a bit easier than maybe in the past. Um, we're not so pigeonholed. You know, and that we must do this. And um, uh, so I, I guess I would say even to instrumentalists, I would I'd be like, give it a try. You know, go ahead and, you know, get some chords going and see what you can do. And most actually can. You know, they they practice the scales enough. They understand uh, theory enough that if somebody's, you know, yelling out at you, you know, okay, A flat to, you know, to D, you can find your way around that. So... And it is one of the things that I think is really fun. As a vocalist, I tend to do that quite a bit if I'm, you know, hanging out and just jamming with friends, you know, even to the point of making up words sometimes, you know, <laughs> just kind of, you know, just kind of rocking along, trying to find something to sing, you know, so I tend to sing uh, primarily now in the Bay Area. Um, so you can definitely find me at the San Francisco Opera, you know, do singing some opera <laughs> there uh, during their seasons. Uh, which are actually, uh, they're quite good. Uh, we have some really great seasons coming up. Um, and we tend to do a summer season and uh, fall season. And then other than that, you can always uh, check out my webpage at buffybaggett.com. I'm on quite a bit of, yeah, YouTube things. Um, yeah, I mean, basically, you know, it, it, we're all electronic now, right? <laughs> so, so yeah, you'll be able to find me online for sure fairly easily.